Welcome back to the Messy City Podcast. This is Kevin Klinkenberg. Got uh, Aaron Lubeck here with me today. Aaron, how you doing, man? It's doing great. It's quite an honor to be on the Messy City Podcast. Well, it's it's great to have you. I think uh, we're, we're going to all learn a lot about Aaron as this goes on. But one of the things that I have always liked uh, about Aaron is he's a he's a guy who has opinions. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and not that, not afraid to share them. That that is true. Guilty as charged. Yeah. So Aaron, you and I uh, met. Uh, I think originally through work with the Incremental Development Alliance, and uh, which is obviously kind of an offshoot of Congress for the New Urbanism. Um, Aaron, I know you're an urban designer and and you're a developer uh, as well. Why don't you talk a little bit about uh, your professional background? How did you? I know you came to do a lot of teaching workshops with Incremental Development Alliance. How did you, where did you start from? How did you get into that world? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and it sort of goes back to somebody asked me what I wanted to be when I was growing up and I hadn't thought about it in 20, 30 years. And I was like, oh, you know, I always wanted to be an architect. And then I took this long meandering path and woke up one day and had a design build company and didn't really, <laughs> I'm not sure there was all that much intention to it, but be careful what you wish for when you're young, right? Yeah, I have a tendency to ward off people who tell me they want to be architects. But oh, well, fair story. enough. And, and, <laughs> and in fairness, maybe I made a right decision there to kind of link it with the building company. It's a sort of different set of stresses, but uh, but fun nevertheless. So I had started, um, I kind of came to contracting actually from a small business background. Uh, everybody else, particularly in the South, who builds things usually is a carpenter who got sick of having a boss. Like that's mm -hmm. how you become a general contractor. And I came to it from a variety of kind of small business backgrounds of helping people with some startup companies that range from new media to renewable energy to organic clothing. And it was, I think, 2002 or so, got into doing light construction work and ended up within a year or two uh, focusing on historic restoration work in central North Carolina, which was practically endless at that point. Um, and once we sort of opened our doors to taking work, the phone didn't stop ringing for 10 years. And so we spent really the better part of 10 years doing, uh, almost exclusively historic restoration work. And, um, you know, through that, uh, I'd had a bit of a career shift kind of around 2010, 2012, when I left that company, wrote a book called Green Restorations, which was loosely about the intersection of the relatively new green building field and the kind of old, but relatively stagnant historic preservation field. And that kind of took me on a different trajectory, which kind of linked me into the new urbanism. Have been blessed to work with Bob Chapman for years, who's, mm -hmm. you know, one of the old guard, original signers of the Congress and so forth. And uh, it kind of shifted me more towards building new great places as opposed to just fixing the old ones. Um, and that's kind of how I got to where we are today. And how long then, so you've been, you've been doing some develop, some ground up development then, and how long you've been doing that? Yeah, so it really shifted around 2012, and, and I spent about five years teaching at Duke University Nicholas School, so I was essentially offline there, and I most the, the disproportionate amount of my work now is actually in land planning and design for others. Hmm. Um, I've been blessed to have a background that sort of um, programs, I think, better city building, better design, better spaces between, and for a lot of reasons, North Carolina, which is my home and I adore, is really undersupplied in people who can speak that language. And so we've got a ton of small builders that are, you know, a lot of them are really good. They're young. They're trying to do better. They want to do better. They're sincere about it, um, but just don't have like the architectural community for a variety of reasons can't cater to people who need construction drawings for, you know, two, three thousand dollars a house. And so 
I've started doing actually a lot of work. I've worked with Allison Ramsey and I think you, you have some plans on there that you license yep. through them, right? Sure do. So I adore Bill. I love their company. I'm, I'm just really bullish on all the potential of having 3,500 stock plans, and, you know, <laughs> that, that can kind of fit almost any situation. Um, uh, so I've spent a lot of my time in the last five plus years linking local need with their, their kind of universal supply. And I've really enjoyed it because uh, it's sort of a, a simple solution, which usually the right solution is a simple solution. And North Carolina uh, has a desperate need to improve its architecture, uh, particularly on new builds. And there's a really simple solution there. So I've done a lot of um, local work for affordable housing agencies and sort of small scale builders, helping them do better product and really enjoy that. Interesting. So, you know, fun fact for you, Cooter Ramsey and I actually have the exact same birthday. So. Good stuff. Yeah, we're both uh, Pearl Harbor Day babies. Oh, it is um, December 7th. Cooter's a partner with Allison Ramsey, for those uh, not aware. Really fantastic architecture firm located uh, or headquartered in Beaufort, South Carolina. They do great, great residential work. So um, how is that? I mean, so you came up working, doing all that uh, preservation work, all that construction and restoration work. What was the was the transition over to thinking about uh, b- broader development, urban design? I mean, how did, how exactly did that happen? How was that a hard thing for you to do? Yeah, it was interesting because the, te- the writing the book and teaching at Duke was almost like a, a professional sabbatical. Like there was a real kind of career, uh, I mean, trajectory change in the sense that it's still it's urban either way. Just one is old, fixing old stuff and one's building new stuff. Um, but that was a nice sort of transition to understand where I was. And, you know, fixing old homes and running a company doing historic restoration is absolutely brutal work. Like nobody does it very long mm-hmm. um, for a variety of reasons. And I don't think I realized how difficult it was until I got out of it, you know, for a minute, which, which yeah. I had the luxury of doing when I was teaching. And but still, you know, there's sort of universal values of walkability and architecture and community and all these things that are pretty much a thread through both old and new urbanism. Um, and I knew, you know, I, I always like to say, even though it sounds hyperbolic, it's like the solution isn't that complex. We need to build more historic neighborhoods, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> it kind of sounds ridiculous, but it shouldn't be, right? Like there are neighborhoods that were built in, the la- in our lifetime that will be deemed historic. And we should be, that should be the standard every time we're building a neighborhood is that that should be the threshold. Like if you don't think that this will stand the test of time. Like, why are we, why are we building it? Right. Yeah. And so that, that was sort of the shift. I mean, and partially it just was by, by, um, by accident got to, um, meet more people in the, the movement. And, and it was funny. I actually had a blog cause my, my first reaction with new urbanism was the same that many people have, especially coming from historic preservation. It's like, well, there's nothing new about this. Like this is, <laughs> this is ridiculous, you know? And um, I think I, I registered the domain old urbanism like in 2005 <laughs> or something because yeah. I was like, this is nonsense, but have been, have been really blessed to sort of engage for the last 10 plus years and been blessed to be part of a lot of the offshoots um, of CNU. As Andres, I think, has said something, I'm paraphrasing here, like everything that's good that's ever come out of the CNU is from one of its you know mutiny groups. I'm not yeah. sure if he used that hyperbolical word, but he probably did. But, you know, you look at a Strong Towns or an Inc. Dev or a National Town Builders Association or now the, the Urban Guild, which I'm really bullish on, kind of the most interesting work are going on in those. And um, I've been pretty involved with Incremental Development Alliance, pretty involved with National Town Builders, where I was on the board. 
and just really proud of what those organizations have done to kind of move move the the line, move the needle, and make make you know better communities. Yeah, it's interesting that you know Andres was right. I think in that respect that there there were a lot of very specifically motivated people uh, in in more narrow. Uh, niches that wanted to create offshoots of CNU that felt like there wasn't enough emphasis on it. So obviously a lot of people in design, specifically in development, who wanted more practical uh, tools and experience. Uh, and so and NTBA and InkDev and all those, and obviously Strong Towns too, had an enormous impact uh, beyond all that. So you eventually came to become faculty member with uh, with InkDev. Yeah. Um, how did that come around and, and, and talk about that experience? Sure. So it was interesting. There's a local uh, developer here named Susanna Dancy, who's sort of the mm-hmm. uh, she does strip malls. She really specializes in strip malls, which is this kind of bizarre uh, sliver of urbanism that you wouldn't even think is urbanism, but kind of <laughs> is. And she was on the board at Incremental Development Alliance when it was growing very fast. I'm guessing this was 2017, 2018, something like that. And they needed good people who could, you know, speak the language of small-scale development, who could recruit new new members, who could talk to, you know, so many of the clientele who go to those conferences. Actually, the majority of attendees to these 80, 100-person classes that we put on, eight-hour class, were non-professionals. I mean, they're, right. they're teachers. They're city employees. They're just like, hey, I've got extra land. I would love to build a duplex here. Like, how do I do it, you know? And so that's a kind of special... It's a different language than CNU preaches. It's a different language that National Town Builders preaches. And credit to the founders of that organization, Jim Kumon, John Anderson, Monty Anderson, for um, identifying that need, but really doing an incredible content lift to create a repeatable package thing where, frankly, the, the demand was, was infinite. I mean, that organization is nowhere near you know, saturating market demand for that knowledge. And, uh, and I really enjoyed, I probably, I'm, I haven't taught with them recently because they're kind of, you know, getting out of the pandemic, ramping up uh, in persons again, but really enjoyed going all over the country to meet uh, just, you know, everyday people who are trying to build their community uh, is exactly what urbanism should be about. Yeah. And so, and you actually taught one in here in Kansas City that yeah. uh, I attended a f- few years back, yeah. uh, which was, you know, one of their one day sessions. Why don't you, for those who aren't familiar, maybe give a little overview of what, what happens in these one day uh, seminars that InkDev does. Sure. So it's a great crash course for somebody who's interested in development, but really kind of doesn't know anything. And I would say that the vast majority of people who do attend do have some kind of tangential connection with building. Often it's like a realtor, but doesn't know anything about design or zoning, or it's an architect who doesn't know anything about finance. And so obviously- Which is all architects, by the way. (laughs) Which is something we can talk about. I think uh, there's a Kronberg (laughs) conversation in there we can get into. Um, But it's, and you can't, you know, teach 20 years experience in in a one day, but I think we do a really good job of getting people to the point where they- you know, there, there's a go, no go moment, like you're going to the moon. And, um, and you, most people come into that conference with some, or, or one day class with some idea what they might want to do or, you know, or have a project that they'd like to execute. And they're just, they can't get over that threshold. And we push a lot of people to, to make the jump. And, and that's great. I mean, both from a purpose of, of their benefit, but their community benefit, but also as sort of an antidote to bland, corporate, small, modernist, this and that. You know, we need 
10,000, 100,000 people building their community because that's that's kind of scrappy urbanism that's organic. So yeah, it's an eight-hour class. Um, a lot of them are going online now, uh, but there'll be there'll be some more in-persons, I think, starting up. I mean, I think the schedule's on the Incremental Development Alliance website. And then there's a there's like a, a, a second round of what, what's called boot, boot camps, which are actually two-day events where if you already have a project and you need work like drawing your site plan and doing a bank plan, that's another offering that the company does. And so it, the, it just recently had a board turnover uh, just around December where the faculty sort of took over the board, which is probably something that should have happened years ago. Um, and that faculty is sort of having a year to sort of reposition it and, and build it back up again because I think everybody involved with it thinks like, you know, we're training a thousand developers a year, but there's no reason we couldn't train 5,000 because the demand's yeah. out there. Yeah. And I, you know, I, for, for anybody who's interested in this sort of thing, if there's one that you can attend or near you, I, I highly recommend it. I mean, if nothing else, it's great to just kind of pull away from whatever you're doing for a day. And uh, if you have an interest in this, in this area, to begin to, uh, if nothing else, you begin to know like what questions to ask and to, you know, learn to learn what you don't know. I mean, I think that's one of the hardest yeah. things about entering development area. And I, and I made a joke about it, but it was, you know, it's really stereotypically true. Like I'm an architect and most ar architects are just generally not trained in finance and development finances as much as we work with d developers. And it's really, really helpful to take a day and dive into that world and understand how projects are actually conceived of and how they come together. It just, it makes you better at what you do. So I, I recommend particularly anybody who's near the industry, architects, planners, elected officials, um, going to the class is certainly a huge help to speak a better language, but frankly, punching through the target and doing development makes you better at your job. Right. Um, and I'll give you an example on that. Uh, we have a, a great city council person here in Durham named Jillian Johnson, um, who's kind of a policy nerd and a, a bit of a firecracker. And she built a duplex while she was in office. And um, and it was controversial for weird reasons. Like, uh, But uh, I think it's great. And one of the things that was most notable from her doing that is she, uh, she is by far the most on point asking questions about developers for applicants, which she sees every every month. You know, most mm -hmm. of most of uh, being on city council is approving things and land use. Just through going through that process, which is inherently painful, inherently difficult, she understands better how this works and what where change might be possible and so forth. And, and so she's always tough, but always fair. But but she is so much more pointed in what she does. And so the same thing goes for if you're a city planner, just build a duplex. If you're an architect, you know, build an ADU. And I, I do think it's noticeable to me the practitioners that are worth their weight in gold have done that. Uh, Eric Kronberg, who's friends mm -hmm. of both of us uh, with his practice in Atlanta, I think has an endless body of work and always will because his, his developer friends who are supposed to know the finance stuff will come to him asking him to design whatever. And he will very quickly sit down with a pro forma with them and say, no, this won't work. And that will. And this like, he's an architect who almost works through this, th this has to work mathematically. Otherwise we're all wasting our time. Like, yeah. And that's a tremendous service for an architect to be able to do. And as you pointed out, basically none do. Yeah. I mean, God, there's just, there's a lot we could talk about here. Um, we take a few minutes cause I'd like to get into more of this, but I remember 
I think the first InkDev seminar that I uh, participated in was one we recruited one when I was still in Savannah, uh, Georgia, and we we hosted one with the Savannah Development uh, and Renewal Authority. And uh, to your point, you know, we had probably half the room, I would say, were public officials, staff, et cetera. And it was really great to take them through the whole process of them laying out a site plan and doing a pro forma and then comparing it to the regulations, you know, for development, whether it's zoning, whether it's process, and then analyzing and going, oh, my God, this thing that we thought was a good idea just doesn't work. Yeah which is a light bulb goes on. It's sort of fun with faculty to see that because you know it's coming. And, you know, that moment where I would say 95% of the conversations I get in about land use are, are, are that exact moment where you're having to have aha moments where people who are saying they want something really don't understand that you can't do it. I don't, have you ever read Daniel Solomon's book, uh, Global City Blues? I love that book. I used to actually uh, require have that as reading for when I taught urban design. It's such a good book. And the, well, the thing I'm going to pull from it, were, I, which I think really should be taught at these, these seminars, is that I'll, I'll test you on it. Do you remember what Solomon's three tribunals were? Oh, God, no. I haven't read it in probably 20 years. So no. <laughs> well, let's see if I can My memory is not good enough. It's probably been five years for me. But basically, he says every project has to clear um, yeah. three tribunals. So I, I feel like I'm going to have a Rick Perry moment now. I forget the thing. But it's, <laughs> it's uh, one is it has to be compliant with code, uh, mm-hmm. building code and zoning code, or you can't build it. Uh, second is that it has to be loved. It has to clear a market tribunal. If nobody wants it, you can build it and it won't. You know, it'll be useless, right? And then right. It, so it dies. Um, and then the last one is the financial. Like it has to pencil, it has to cost less than whatever rent or sale you get from it. Right. And so this can eliminate 90% of the conversations you have with people with no skin in the game about, hey, why aren't we building affordable housing? It's like, well, let's load test it against the three tribunals and we can find out what's going wrong and we can maybe solve for it. Um, but people don't understand that. They just think, yeah. hey, we get to get together and decide what we want you to build and you'll build it. And none of these things matter. And it's like, yeah. no. It's not and you've probably works. run across this you know, in Durham and in that area. But, you know, one of our constant sources of frustration uh, in, in my city and in, frankly, in a lot of places I work in is, you know, you get people who maybe are well-meaning about uh, development and about their community, about, you know, regulations. They sit on a city council or a planning commission. And they construct rules um, that they think are going to do something positive. But number one, they don't have any skin in the game. So it, 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 they're asking somebody else to do something. But, but really, more importantly, they don't go through this exercise to do the math and actually understand who are the real people, who are the real humans who are actually going to do this thing that we say we want to do, and how are they going to, how are they going to actually do it? Yeah, the, uh, somebody wants to describe it as that the, the world is filled with people who want you to execute their vision at your risk, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and, 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 there's, and there's, you know, of course, there's a general problem, I think, in the discourse now, which is sort of a result of the dark way that participatory planning has gone, which is demonizing and demagoguic, uh, being demagogic towards the people who build things. I mean, there right. is almost like a a second-class citizen. I mean, I often hear people in the trades referred to as, uh, or referred to the people who are not in the trades as the real people. Hmm. Like, it's pretty disturbing. And I know, I think that's the starting point that sort of feeds into this uh, entitlement right. right that we're better or we're more important and you guys are just here for whatever reason. You have to listen to us. 
and do what we say. And of course, because of the three tribunals and politics and human nature, and you know, there's not a lot of people who want to willingly work for people like that. It creates that tension. And so, yeah, I'm not sure we're close to solving those problems, but they're very real and they're pretty unique to land use. I mean, this yeah. is not, you don't see this in restaurant touring. Exactly. Like the restaurant tour doesn't filter his menu through the neighborhood listserv, you know, mm-hmm. you know, so yeah, there seems to be a weird, a weird relationship, uh, with real estate and development in general and politics versus almost any other line of business. I, you know, I often, I say here, like if, if our city was going to uh, put in place new regulations for barbershops and hair salons, um, they would never do it without consulting, you know, dozens of people who do that kind of work in their city. But when it comes and really trying to understand it because people have direct experience with getting their hair cut and doing those things. But when it comes to real estate and development, it's almost just like, well, we can just kind of make this thing work. And and somebody in another city told us this was a good thing to do. So we're just going to do it. And we're not going to sit down with the people who actually do this every day and figure out if it makes sense. It's a huge problem. Um, And I think it's worse in progressive cities because there's that us versus them bifurcation is really real. Um, and sort of a um, demagogic approach towards the people who build the community. Um, it's a huge problem. And uh, I, I think it's gradually being solved um, that a lot of this is a reestablishment of property rights that just circumvents this. It sort of gives up on the, the, the process of you know, working through modernist planners. Right. Um, but it's a slow process. It's, it's a knife fight to do. Um, I really think... And it's accelerated by things like the Yimby movement, which, as you know, I've been involved with. Um, I, I really think so much of it's generational. Like, if you look at who's protesting new housing at any city USA, uh, it's almost exclusively baby boomers. Yeah. Um, and it's generally, as you know, us Gen Xers are kind of the Jan Brady generation. We're just in the middle. And, like, it's usually mm-hmm. baby boomers who are well-housed versus millennials who aren't. Right. And in the Gen X is sort of the fulcrum on this. And we had in Durham when we were doing zoning code fights, Gen X basically showed up into a creative class city where most of us moved here or lived here because we're like, no, we, we actually chose to live in a diverse community, which we want to have opportunity. A lot of us like rejected the Chapel Hill model, which is very exclusionary. And most of Gen X was like, yeah, we have our house, but we actually don't want to spend time like preventing others from having theirs. So let's get on with it, you know. So I think that there's a demographic shift that, for me, this clearly has a watershed moment no later than 2030, which is when baby boomers kind of drop off a demographic cliff. Something yeah. is going to happen, and a lot of the act, the activity that's going on now in Texas, California, all these states that are doing these reforms are just accelerating that. But if it's not accelerated, it's going to happen. The writing's on the wall. It's just it, it may take a decade. Where you are uh, in in the triangle there, is it, I mean, North Carolina for years has been a high growth state. Is that still occurring? Do you still see waves oh, yeah. of people coming in and, and uh, Charlotte and the triangle and, oh. and the rest of the state? Absolutely. I'll blow your mind on this because I've always thought of North Carolina sort of like a mid-sized state, right? It's like we're not Vermont and we're not New York right. City. So in the 2030 census, which is like 15 minutes from now, right? Um, either Georgia or North Carolina will be the fifth biggest state in the country. Hmm. Isn't that crazy? That's amazing. Yeah, and both have remarkably similar demographics, fast-growing, where the two that get displaced, I think, are either Philadelphia or, or, I'm sorry, Pennsylvania or Ohio, which are basically stagnant. Mm -hmm. But, um, I mean, North Carolina is just booming, and it's, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's, 
it's great to be in an area where people are wanting to move to and are optimistic about and is beautiful and has so much going on for it with the universities and so forth. But it does create kind of a trauma of change because it's just constant. I mean, we've got, I live in a town of 250,000 people that just announced Google and Apple campuses, you know, I mean, and cranes are in the air and, you know, in this, in a town that's not really big, you know, so um, there's always that tension, um, but it's, uh, and I've lived in Michigan as well, where things were sort of managed in a state of stasis or even decline, which is just harder and more right. stressful. Um, so I, I like being in a great area that's, that's booming. Growth is good. Yeah. I mean, people always complain about the, the problems of growth, but the problems of decline are much worse uh, and much, much harder to solve. They are. And, and sort of there's, there's two basic solutions to, um, you know, to displacement or opportunity at the, the lowest uh, increment of the, the ladder. And that's to grow and create those opportunities for people of the, the, the least means. Or you can make your city shitty, um, yeah. which drives away investment and keeps things affordable. And it's been, I guess, shocked, not that shocked, that every city has a handful of people who are arguing for the latter solution, right? Yeah. Like keep yeah. business away, keep it bad, don't don't build sidewalks, don't build okay. bike infrastructure, don't build parks. We're fighting a lot of that yeah, ourselves. And it's weird, and it comes from all directions. You would think that it might there might be an ideological association with it, but it really comes from all, all directions, it seems like. Yeah, and I mean, it's one of the joys of working in the Midwest, and I grew up partially in St. Louis, so I sort of get the vibe that was it still stood with me when I taught that class in Kansas City, I, uh, which was sort of salt of the earth. Yeah, I think I think it's usually farther away from nonsensical politics than you know the left coast or the or yeah. the Atlantic, um, and it, it stood out to me. I remember because I usually ask people when I teach the incremental development class, like, okay, well, how many of you guys have have done any small scale development? And usually, out of a hundred, it'd be. 15 or so and everybody else is there curious about it and in kansas city it was like 60 <laughs> it was like <laughs> and it was people who i wouldn't have expected it's just like you know the midwest is people you know if a ditch needs digging go grab a shovel like it's just it's usually more matter of fact and you you, you have less of the the nonsense to deal with which is always sort of a, a pleasure of going back yeah there. some it's of those straight. some of those stereotypes uh ring true they're there for a reason uh, sure. so getting back to so then like this, this issue of scaling. So especially you being in a high growth area and the idea of trying to scale, you know, new developers, have you had some success with that either through the ink dev classes or just you know, locally in your area with creating new people to do this work? Yeah. So it helps that again, in a booming area, they just sort of show up naturally. I mean, again, some of them are non-professional developers. Some of them are young people that have left high school or college and get into this industry. And so we have a very North Carolina and the triangle has done a great job at creating young development talent. Um, most of the people in industry, I would say, are uh, 40 or under, which is mm. good, because um, I think that that's a problem constantly, is if zoning is bad and if the political environment's bad, the thresholds to enter become so high and so risky that you know everything becomes old money or corporate, and that's a huge problem. And there's some great stuff. There's a lot of small developers of color here um, that are unbelievable friend of mine, Tiffany Elder, who is actually faculty at, at uh, Incremental yeah. Development Alliance as well now. She just came here and, and spoke in Kansas City. So. Oh, good, good. Yeah. Uh, Tiffany is also Midwestern salt of the earth. She's a South Side Chicago girl. Um, but she is the leader of a, a black real estate development group called The Collective that is, is 20 people that are um, 
mostly early career and, you know, undercapitalized, not a ton of like, you know, hugely successful people in there, but everybody's super driven, loves their city, wants to do better. And it's like a trade group that shares information, supports each other and is a civic group. I mean, this is how communities are built. And it occurs to me, um, most places I've traveled haven't had that or don't have that. And, um, and it's needed because it's, you know, it's funny when we get together with the NTBA uh, crowd or even some of the CMU crowd, most of us feel like we're out on an outpost or an island all by ourselves. And it's great to see everybody and <laughs> see what people have been struggling with and so forth. But that's where those civic groups and trade groups come in. I mean, they, that's how you get people over the hump. That's how you get people out of infancy. And you, you make sure that, that young uh, practitioners survive because it's a really hard industry. Um, it has, you know, it's high capital, high leverage, and a lot of people, you know, get wiped out. So yeah. the support really matters. And um, th those have given me a lot of inspiration groups like hers. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things, Aaron, that I've, I've uh, enjoyed about your uh, presentations at, at InkDev is uh, I would, uh, I would put you in like the tough love camp. And uh, <laughs> I hope, I hope you think that's fair, but uh, it seems to me like you like to give people that, you know, dose of reality about, yeah. you know, what they're getting into that this is a great thing to do. We want more people to do it, but it's hard and you better, you better learn how to yeah. do and appreciate X, Y, and Z, or you're going to fail. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about. <laughs> I'll have to ask my son know. if that's how I parent too. It's, there's a lot of like fear, <laughs> like don't, don't screw this up. But no, I, I, and I, I think there's some, there's some truth in negative selling. Cause there's like, it's such a huge commitment. Obviously you don't want people, you know, signing construction loans if they're not going to follow through because it can be catastrophic uh, yeah. for them. And it is, you know, it's an industry that I think, um, more and more people should get into because it's needed to create better cities and better communities, but it's not for everybody. I mean, that's very clear. Like not everybody should build a duplex. Not everybody should build an ADU. Uh, people have different family situations. People have different capacities for risk. Um, so I think it, it's, it's helpful to, you know, you go through, let me tell you all the reasons why you should not be a small scale incremental builder developer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hard, there's risk, there's, um, you know, you have to get up and meet the plumber on a rainy cold day at 7am. And, you know, um, there's no, it's not a W2, you're not going to get a paycheck on Friday, like nobody's there to save you, you're going to deal with, you know, staff that's not helpful, you're going to deal with people who are having a bad day that you're completely contingent on them <laughs> having yeah. a good day for your project to succeed. And, uh, a lot of people thrive on that, but you know, a lot don't. And it's, it's yeah. helpful um, to know. I also think that there's a lot of young kids who are kind of hard headed and driven that actually get motivated by the negatives. Sure. I mean, I don't know if they, they just like doing things that are difficult or some see it as a barrier to entry. Like, Hey, this is, this is tough. So a bunch of people aren't going to do it. And that means this is great for, you know, for me to do it. What have you, what have you seen, uh, if you think about some of the typical uh, mistakes or problems uh, or just things that even come up in the seminars, the questions that people ask, you know, where, where, where do you see typically that where you try to redirect people? Oh, redirect people like away from doing this or, no, or just, you, you know, mean? anything that maybe is like, uh, you know, this, this is like a wrong path to, that you're thinking about, or here's a, here's a oh, common yeah. issue or mistake that, that oh, you're headed good, towards. That's a good question. Um, you know, I think people building, um, things too large, not understanding that, that the basic math that, you know, um, that new construction rental property is absolutely brutal math that is went from probably brutal to impossible with interest rate rises recently. Mm -hmm. Like people are trying to do it and I appreciate it because we need more good, 
uh, rental property in the world, but like it is a, as a hard road to hoe and people uh, can learn it the hard way or they can accept that fact. Um, yeah, or, or just believing that, you know, entitlements are easy. They're just like, oh, yeah. I got this land, but I need to get it rezoned for this, and I'll just go do that. And it's like, yeah. well, you know, we've seen a lot of small people exit that whole process because it's 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 just not built for a small either, practitioner. Either anymore. ignorance or overconfidence of, of, what, yeah. of what it takes to get through that process. Yeah, and John Anderson was always really good at, like, you know, um, it's funny when we do those site plan exercises, the incremental development, like, basically, we, like, give a team an hour to come up with, like, here's the different things you can put on this fairly basic rectangular site, and we're going to see what goes on it, and then you're going to do a pro forma. Every single person reads that as oh i've got to maximize what goes in the site i've got to maximize the number and it's like no <laughs> absolutely not in any way not for this exercise you don't win if you you know make more money or put more housing on it which don't necessarily correlate by the way but everybody thinks that way and it's and it's like sometimes actually very often the simple solution is better just you know just because you can do four homes doesn't mean you need to like right. you know there's other factors at play it's green space it's parking it's it's architecture, it's um, whatever, other amenities. And so, um, you know, that, that is, I think, uh, when people get into it and they, they recognize the pressures to make something pencil, uh, it's just a default setting. What's the, what's the maximum? And that's not necessary. Yeah, I think another thing that I've seen that it kind of pains me to say uh, as an architect, but there's an awful lot of people who jump into something quickly and start spending a bunch of cash out of pocket to architects and other consultants uh, before they've even really figured out whether something is a uh, is viable financially, it's completely right. I've I've actually told the story a couple times. There was a young um, gay couple who moved from Atlanta to Durham and wanted to start a coffee shop, and they had locked up a small commercial building which had to do a change of use, and um, were very, you know they probably had, I bet you they had five thousand dollars in their bank account and they were just like it's really not enough to start a business but they were going to do it anyway right it's just like exactly and there's multiple coffee shops in Durham that have done that by the way but they spent a some substantial amount of what they had figuring out the kind of entitlement rules that the parking basically eliminated their dreams if you do a change of use then you're subject to the crazy parking rules and we've got graphs of this we're like a a basic 7,000 square foot building would require you to take out like the neighboring eight houses just to park it. Like, mm. and so then you're dead and then you got to do a rezoning or you got to do a, a minor special use and you're in another thousand dollars. And it's like, it's just killing uh, dreams. So I think start simple, do something by right. And that's obviously a constant frustration of the people who do this advocacy work is like pretty much nothing good is allowed by right in a lot of these cities right. anymore and that yep. just kills um otherwise entrepreneurs uh who would be opening up coffee shops and restaurants and bars and whatever else yeah yeah we just actually had a new a major new ordinance revision pass here in kansas city missouri that i think is going to be a game changer for small scale infill development on the residential side which i'll have to dive into and talk more about uh, at a future date but I'm curious. So, so I know that you've also, I mean, you're not somebody to sit around and just kind of accept that those are the way things are in your own community. And you've been pushing to try to make changes and reforms. Uh, what, what have you been doing? What have you had success with in trying to make it easier for people to do these projects? Yeah, so sure. So Durham, as, as frustrating and crazy a place as it is, it's actually been one of the national leaders in zoning reform. I've, I've almost been a little bit surprised that it hasn't gotten more press for it. 
as a point of fact, I remember Minneapolis got rid of single family zoning a few years ago and got a ton of press for it. We actually paid their planners to come down here to teach us how to do it. Hmm. And then we ended up actually doing it before they did. <laughs> so they, they basically put it in their comp plan and then we got rid of single family zoning and then they did it after us. So it was kind of funny to watch. Kind of funny. Um, uh, but so there was a zoning reform called Expanding Housing Choices in 2019. It was led by the city council uh, at the time, voted for it six to one. They had directed planning staff to uh, make some changes to make housing easier to build. And I was blessed to be uh, asked to, to participate in that. It had a bunch of small stuff, but there were two things that were really transformative. Um, one was the elimination of single family zoning. Uh, we were one of the first. Uh, cities to do that, and I believe the first in the South to do that, which has a direct origin uh, of racist origins, but really expansion in Durham, uh, single-family zoning was radically expanded in 1969, it, pretty explicitly as a response to the Fair Housing Act, um, mm. that large lot, you know, reduced right. densities were a way that uh, people kept the other out. And so that, that our council, which was pretty activist as far as city councils go, was really, really thrilled to uh, reconcile that historic wrong. So what we're, before you jump into the next things, talk a little bit about what, for, for, especially for people who may not know what all that means, what, what specifically was like the impact of that from a development standpoint? Sure. So there was a split, you know, Durham's 40 some percent black uh, and has longstanding black neighborhoods, some very successful, some, some more impoverished, but... It was very clear the standard residential zoning, RU5, which is dominant throughout the city, uh, the white neighborhoods were single family, the black neighborhoods allowed duplexes, even though they're hmm. basically the same zoning and same density. And so they simply got rid of that, but in all residential zonings in the urban part of the city, you could now build two homes on the lot where you could previously only build one. Okay. Further, you could build an accessory dwelling on uh, on the duplex. So basically any residential lot, you could now build three homes if you wanted to. Um, not that many people have taken up that opportunity to build three, but it creates, as you know, as an architect, mm -hmm. some pretty unique opportunities where if you have two lots next to each other and you can build three on each, you're kind right. of into a pocket neighborhood territory right. without having a pocket neighborhood code. And that creates all sorts of affordable housing options, lower cost housing options, community development, intentional communities, co-living, yada, yada. And so that was pretty cool uh, to see. Um, and that's created uh, just more opportunities for um, housing at the lowest increment, where, as we know, even in places like Kansas City, which aren't as booming as like in Atlanta or something, when infill happens, it's usually a $200,000 home getting knocked down and a $700,000 home going up. So the ability to replace that with a duplex or a three-unit um, is a right that just has to be restored. Uh, mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're going to get in expansions and displacement. Right. And and so you said you haven't seen too many people uh, apply for it yet or do it, but uh, it seems like, you know, I've talked about this a little bit with with planning staff uh, folks before, that it seems like that's an ideal fit for, like, the house hacking crowd yet at that scale. It may, it may be too small for a lot of uh, investor oh, yeah developers, but it's really great for somebody who wants to do it themselves and have an extra unit or two on their property where they could make income. From. And we're seeing that. We're seeing a lot of citizens who are very active politically, who, you know, housing is a topic at every council meeting and every month in news that are, you know, there's a lot of citizens who care about that. And, and more and more people are like, you know what, hell with it. I'm going to build one myself. <laughs> and they hire an architect mm -hmm. to do an ADU or they, they say, oh, I could duplex my property. 
And more and more people who are absolutely non-professional builders are doing that. And it's like citizens, you know, grabbing the shovel. We got a problem here. Let's dig a ditch. And uh, that's great to see. And it's just it, the, the constant need and constant battle is to make it easier for them because there's certainly uh, for every person who decides to pay an architect to go design an ADU, there's, you know, or for every 10 that do, there's probably two or three that then get sticker shock and then fall off doing it. Like yeah. it's still really, really hard to do. Yeah. Uh, and that matters. Yeah. What, what have you, just out of curiosity, what have you seen in terms of uh, construction costs to build a, a simple two car garage ADU? Oh, that's a great question. I definitely knew, I don't know if that was the exact design, but ours are limited to 800 square feet currently. So you see like a two car garage with a, you know, 800 square feet above. And my guess is those are 250, 300 grand now wow. to build. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, partially because there's a severe shortage of builders willing to do it. I mean, that's yeah. that's another problem. Like, there's really only one or two people you could call because all the people who you'd like to hire to do it are now, you know, $400,000 minimums, $500,000 minimums. Yeah. And it's yeah. a whole different deal when interest rates are 3% instead of 8%. It is. Yeah. Well. well, and there's always been a little bit of an equity. Well, I guess it's an equity problem is that Portland did a great study on this that ADUs were disproportionately built, well, almost exclusively by homeowners and almost exclusively in cash so even though there were lower wealth homeowners who would like to build an adu and are ready and willing they're essentially not able because of the financing problems um that the appraisal industry is not is, is really ripe for reform on this issue um but they uh, just don't appraise ex accessory dwellings at the same value of the primary therefore right. you need more cash out of pocket therefore people who you know, would do it if they could get a loan for it, won't. And it becomes a tool that wealthier people only have access to. So that, that needs fix. There's no doubt yeah. about it. Yeah. It's been, I remember when we, we owned one and it was a real challenge talking about it with uh, appraisers and frankly with our insurance company as well, in terms of how to, how to value it and how to look at it from, do they look at it from an income standpoint or just, you know, a, a value of the property per square foot standpoint, like anything else. Yeah, I mean, we see a nearly identical like-kind accessory dwellings appraised for a quarter or less, hmm. you know, square foot value of the main house, which means you're either yeah. coming out of pocket cash or you're screwed. Yeah, that makes it really hard to get a loan uh, to do any of it. So were you able to get um, citywide kind of ADU reform uh, tied in with all the without the other reform? So strangely, and I'm the world's biggest critic of Durham zoning code, but the ADUs were already in there. They were part of the 2006 rewrite. Um, it's a little bit of a historical anomaly of why they got in there, because knowing Durham's housing politics, they would have been fought if they <laughs> were aware of it. But they're in there, and we have decent ADU um, stuff. And they've, and they've been, you know, people are more and more building accessory dwellings. So those were pretty universal. Um, it's interesting in North Carolina, well, we, we got rid of the parking requirement for the ADU, which was a big deal because those kill a lot of deals. And then strangely, North Carolina had a uh, Supreme Court law that basically threw out uh, owner occupancy requirements hmm. uh, on, a, on, an un, a real, on an issue unrelated to accessory dwellings, but it said that you cannot legislate uh, status of ownership through zoning. So you can't discriminate and say like, no, you, you can't build a, a house there and rent it. You have to owner occupy it. It just threw it out. So that got, those are gone in North Carolina as well. I think it's one of just a few states that have that. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it kind of makes sense logically. Uh, and I can see the rationale for it, but it, it certainly hasn't stopped a lot of cities from, from doing that. And we, we have that requirement here with the ADU reform that we just passed 
uh, last year in Kansas City, Missouri, it, it has an owner occupancy requirement. Uh, I think I think most cities that have ADUs have that. Actually, I yeah. think more often than not, you'll see an owner occupancy requirement. Yeah, and frankly, it was it's a funny thing, but like the politics of it really, it it grew out of uh, the explosion in short term rentals and Airbnbs, and just a lot of fear on the part of neighborhood uh, residents that that just was going to be an even bigger growth in Airbnbs in their neighborhoods. Uh, so. Yeah, that's usually and and it it makes most sense where it's really a well where it's more of a problem is the the high tourist areas. So like in Asheville, it's more of an issue because they get 10 times the number of tourists there than you know durham or kansas city does because at an extreme it's seaside i mean seaside yeah. is a horizontal hotel now absolutely like, yeah. nobody lives there actually and and that's okay i mean you can certainly make the case that that's great more people get to experience seaside and yeah. and so forth but it's it's obviously a complete change of its reason for existence and so i kind of get the fear i don't totally agree with it and of course yeah. if you just build enough housing there's enough room for for everybody and it also kind of gets around the basic idea that you regulate the nuisance not the <laughs> like the type of housing yeah because most people who stay short term are completely de decent people who are great and for even for a brief period of time they're part of the community they say hi many of them are just checking out they're seeing their families in kansas city they're coming to check out kansas city for the weekend to see if they want to retire there and it's just a warmer kind of more human existence than going to the Marriott. Yeah. And so, you know, where it does exist, uh, and there are certainly areas where, you know, houses exist that are slums to party in, uh, the nuisance needs to be better enforced. And frankly, it's the same thing as student rentals. It's not the fact that students live in the house is the problem. It's the problem that they're partying, they're loud. So deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in college towns, it's kind of like you've been through this drill before when it related to student housing and occupancy and you know, just older homes with six, eight, ten students in them or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, so it, it's a funny thing. It's like it, when it comes to the short-term rental issue, I always, I kind of feel like we're all hypocrites. You know, it's mm -hmm. like we, uh, you know, it's certainly we as a family, we travel and use them, you know, all the time. And, uh, but then like none of us want one next door in the house yeah. next door. So. There was some, and I, I feel like I'm going to throw the wrong department under the bus, but I remember it kind of blew up on social media where, I assume it was Asheville because Asheville has been pretty aggressive towards regulating Airbnbs and have said some, even staff has said some things that were kind of aggressive against them. And then there was a great picture of them going to some conference and all of them were like, Hey, look at our Airbnb. We're having a great time. <laughs> and it's like, well, so again, I think it's, it's, uh, there is some hypocrisy there for sure. Yeah. So Aaron, you've also been involved with the NTBA, National Town Builders Association. You mentioned it a little bit earlier. What uh, for people who don't are familiar with that organization, how would how would you describe it? Yeah, the National Town Builders Association has been around for uh, twenty years. Um, uh, I'm a big fan of the organization. It's about hundred members who are really the cream of the crop, urban uh, developers who do, in particular, do town building. Um, mm -hmm which is sort of a shocking thing for a non-CMU person to hear. It's like, really, we're, yeah. we're still building towns? Like, is that really <laughs> a thing? Um, and uh, incredible people from all over the country, pretty disproportionately the South, who are doing these, these developments that are 20, 30, 50 years long. I mean, unheard yeah. of projects in a world where, you know, most of the public builders want to be in and out in two years. And these are the great walkable communities like Vince Graham and Ion and certainly Seaside and the, the 30A beaches and uh, uh, Brewer doing the stuff in Atlanta and the Humphreys brothers out in Oklahoma. 
that are just doing really difficult work against the grain to just do it right. And, um, and it was a CNU offshoot that predated me, but basically decided that as the Congress of New Urbanism is great, it's also, um, it's hard to spend time with the people who are actually doing this work, who are, you know, taking on these 20 year projects who are, you know, some of these are, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of development. And so it decided it needed its own conference to just kind of get under the hood and deal with the difficulties uh, of that. And so we meet twice a year for roundtables and bucking the stereotype of, uh, of developers. You know, I, a lot of the other conferences I go to, it's a little bit of like, you know, look at me, look at all what I've done and I'm, I've never made a mistake and I'm, you know, perfect. And here's all the great work I've done. Really, we get together and all we do is talk about what we did wrong. Like, that's <laughs> what people want to know. Like, where'd you yeah. screw this up? So I don't have to, you know? And so it's really refreshing to have that. It's a shockingly humble group and very open and sharing. And we had a great, on that note, we had a, our first roundtable coming out of COVID was here in Durham. And uh, by co coincidence, it was, uh, I think, months after George Floyd uh, happened. And we decided we, were, we wanted to involve ourselves in a conversation of what town building and urban development had to, um, had a role or an offering to help solve some of these systemic problems that were very clear uh, in legacy cities. And so we had a, a incredible engagement actually with Tiffany Elders Group. The collective were invited out to kind of engage with us. We did a dinner with them. We had uh, some really scrappy uh, black developers from Oklahoma City tell their story about how they're rejuvenating an area that nobody's investing in hmm. and uh, dealing with the HBCU here, which just started a real estate program. And it's this, this weird disconnect that everybody's really interested in sort of connecting for a lot of reasons, you know, urban development, well, I should say town building specifically, uh, is not diverse. Um, I think development broadly is not diverse. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think there's anybody who wants it that way. And so there's a question of, you know, what what we miss or what's needed. We know that there's people who want to do this kind of work. Yeah. And some of it's just information sharing. Certainly there's a capital access issue that, that is real. Um, but those conversations were, were great and, and kind of were willingly sought after by the group. Uh, and I enjoyed that. Yeah. So will that, uh, in that vein, is that something that NTBA kind of wants to continue and build on in future get-togethers or just future work? I think I think so. Like every, every round table has a different theme and, and, um, and often they're more technical than that. I mean, that was a, that was a pretty ambitious lift relative to the other topics that we talk about, which are, mm -hmm. you know, range from, you know, transport to common space to HOA stuff, like kind of technical developer nerd yeah. stuff. How to build an alley. That's sort of right. <laughs> there's, there's some alley nerds in that group. Let me tell you. <laughs> um, so I will say uh, one of the, early members, Frank Starkey, who I believe is on the board of the Congress of New Urbanism, uh, his right-hand man is a guy named Brzezinski Boys, uh, who you should have on this podcast, by the way. Uh, Brzezinski is an incredible talent, um, and he, just a year ago, started the Congressional Black Congress for the New Urbanism, which was by far the most exciting part of the Oklahoma Congress last year. Unbelievable amount of talent he's aggregated um, from across the country, a ton in Oklahoma, by the way. And it was overwhelming to me how talented people were, how excited people were, and to the juxtapose of that, how fragmented the black development community is. Right. It, it occurred, it was pretty clear to me, like nobody's talking to each other. Um, for whatever reason, I don't claim to know it, 
but that camaraderie that we had at the NTBA, where people from all walks of life and all different corners of the earth come together to share information, they simply were not doing. Hmm. And so this, this network effect that comes from civic groups, that comes from community building, they were not capturing the same benefit that NTBA had been. And again, NTBA is 20 years old with people who've been doing this for 40 years. I mean, I, we met you know, young black female builders in Oklahoma city that have probably built more stuff than I ever have. And they were like upper twenties. So like, hmm. there's this young army of development talent that he's, he's kind of curated. And I think the, it's the, that's exciting. Yeah. yeah what he's where he's going to go with it is kind of an open book, but um, I think, you know, he's, he's a big liaison with the NTBA. And my guess is that somebody will build a black town you know, it's never been done. I've asked all the people of the NTBA that you get into the 1960s Soul City stories and so forth, but really nobody's ever done kind of an intentional black community. Full recognizing that there's like fair housing issues where you can't discriminate on skin color, but you can build a community that's pretty intentionally built for a community uh, holding those reservations where you can't discriminate. And that will happen. And my guess is it's going to come out of somebody uh, in his group. And you know, whether the NTBA is involved in any way, who knows, but I think that linkage is there. And so when a young talent arises and they need some mentorship for somebody who's done this successfully, it'll be there. And, you know, that's going to happen. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, I, I love the, especially the idea of connecting, uh, connecting with younger people and helping them kind of build up into this, especially, you know, we're not, we're not exactly young uh, anymore. <laughs> hey, speak <laughs> for yourself. And uh, we really need to, uh, all of us need to find better ways to uh, bring along people who are younger than ourselves. I, uh, you know, as a jaded Gen Xer, I kind of always felt like the, uh, the folks older than us didn't necessarily do a very good job of that with our generation. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's, it's incumbent upon us to just do better. Uh, totally agree. Forward. And it's, frankly, it's the most fun thing. I mean, I, I know as I approach 50, I mean, my, my goal is to, um, advisory is the wrong word, but sort of, you know, I, I love the mentorship is a lot of fun and you can still be involved with this stuff and solve very real problems and create place, but shifting to a role where you get all of the joy and none of the responsibility, which is, I call yeah. it as like grand parental, right? <laughs> right. Um, I want to do more of that. And I think that there's a lot of people in industry who, who do that. And if there's, you know, there's a couple of critiques we could offer of the Congress, but I know I was talking with Nathan Norris at the town builders conference and they did, like the leadership programming and training and apprenticeship has never really been that strong systematically at the Congress, at least when I've right. been involved with it. And I don't think it's necessarily hard. Like, you know, you're, you're pretty active with the urban guild. I think yep. you guys could probably in an hour identify five people under 30 that you're like, yeah, I'm betting on that guy. Yeah. Let's bet on those guys. Let's, then let's talk about a programming mentorship or what we could do to make sure that they do great, but they also frankly learn stuff faster than we did because they don't mm -hmm. have to spend 20 years making the same mistakes I did, you know? Yeah. And that's, no that's how we move the, the ball forward, but it has, it, it, it has to happen with some intention of, or it just won't happen. Yeah. So Aaron, uh, last thing I want to chat about real quick is, you know, you're also involved in starting a magazine. Uh, so how did this come about and what's the story behind uh, I did. Southern <laughs> urbanism, right? Southern Urbanism and the, and the magazine Southern Urbanism Quarterly, our second issue, uh, is hot off the presses. And I will be driving to Richmond to go pick it up to make sure that I have copies at, at the Congress uh, next week. So uh, I can confirm, yes, I am 
sprinting into the burning dumpster fire that is print journalism, uh, right <laughs> as everybody is running out of it. Um, but I've really enjoyed this process, and it's kind of filling a need and a, a frustration that uh, you know isn't unique at the Congress. That I don't. I mean, nobody's happy with the way we're building cities. Like even the best town builders who are doing great work have broad frustrations with the way that cities are being built today. And there's a fragmented um, information available about how to do that. Um, I, I love the Congress, but the Congress has always, I think a fair critique of it has been relatively insular. It hasn't been growth oriented. It's, yeah. um, I think it that needs to change. I mean, who knows, maybe a thousand people will be in Charlotte, but like, why isn't that 10,000? Like, I know. what would it I take know. to be that? And so the offshoots have done a better job at sort of growth. Um, and I know much of this is actually just repacking the same content for a younger generation. Like the 20 year olds I know have never heard of the charter. Yep. Like, and it's basically right. And it just needs to be repackaged. And so our model is pretty based off of uh, Sightlines Institute out in Seattle, an action tank run by Alan Durning that's behind most of the major reforms there for better building in Portland and Seattle and the, and the, the states up there in Vancouver. And they're very active in curating talent. Um, and that's that, there's a void in the South um, where we do think it needs to be regional to have effect. But, um, you know, the South has 140 million people now. It's, it's actually the most populated region of the country now. Like, mm -hmm. you know, fucking yeah, stereotype. And from D.C. to El Paso, there's nothing where people like me or you or younger versions of ourselves can go to read about doing it better and reading about what other people are doing. Um, and so we're curating those stories. Brzezinski writes for us. Eric Kronberg writes for us. Ali Quinlan, all uh, Inc. Dev or NTBA people. Thomas Dougherty, who wrote the book The American Alley and is kind of an expert in faith-based housing, pins a piece in this next one. And actually, the cover story is a person who will come to his first CNU, uh, a retired Major League Soccer player at 27, who has now become a developer, named Tesho Ekandeli, who's very active on Twitter, who pins a four-part piece on why professional athletes should be developers, should be urban developers. And not just investing in, like, you know, mediocre apartments, but, like, making place. And it's just a really compelling story that, you know, no one's really touched. So we're touching these areas that are kind of virgin territory. And our goal is to be compelling and, you know, make sure that it's the kind of content that you get excited when it shows up in the mail every every couple months uh, to clear your schedule to read through. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's an interesting venture. You're right. I mean, I love the idea of the content. It, it's fascinating to see what will happen with the world of print journalism and how that how that evolves. It's such a incredibly fast changing world. Uh, it is. And I know, I mean, and it's interesting that there's still some very real costs with print, you know, from the physical printing to the editor in chief to, we've got a great executive director, actually an immigrant from the Virgin islands named Ralph Plaskett, who will be with us again in Charlotte. Um, and those are all very real expenses, but the, you know, we're blessed is that most journalism models don't work because journalists are expensive, even, yeah. even at a lowered cost, many of them are making. And as you know, many of these writers, like my writers are for free, like, cause they're all the practitioners and the talent mm -hmm. who are, know this information and they're thrilled to have the, the outlet and we'll see if that's sustainable. But right now it's like, everybody's thrilled to have a place they can talk cause they haven't for, for yeah. 20 years. Right. And then we've got a really interesting model in the spirit of, um, apprenticeship and training and raising uh, a new generation of talent. Uh, we've engaged with the universities here in the Triangle, which are 
you know, everywhere um, to actually our, our only paid writers are the students. And so there's, there's fellows that were very intentional about linking them with practitioners. And so they're super smart, super talented, eager to, you know, talk cities, build better cities, but they, you know, obviously they don't have the experience inherently because they're young, but in the academic world, they're not going to engage with somebody like you or somebody like Andres or Bob Chapman. And we can make those links, which is not mm-hmm. a huge amount of work, but it's just a much richer experience. So our content generation is pretty unique model. And, you know, thus far it's working and we're, we're bullish on it and we, we're creating, I think our content's really compelling. So cool. We're going to keep on pushing on. All right. I look forward to it. I look forward to seeing more about it. I obviously have an interest to all the years that I lived in Savannah uh, as mm-hmm. well, which is an incredible community and yeah. uh, great historic place. And, but, but still like most growing uh, communities in the South struggles with approaches to new development uh, and uh, how's it going to, how's it going to look? How's it going to feel? And does it have any of the qualities of, of the old part of the city? Uh, so Aaron, I want to, want to wrap up uh, with right. the question I ask everybody, which is, you know, this is the messy city podcast. When you hear that term, uh, messy city, what uh, what comes to mind for you? Well, the South, I mean, first and foremost, I mean, I think um, th- the way Atlanta is developing is sort of fascinating and it's it's just scrappy and messy and, uh, and, a, and a completely different form of urbanism than you would see in a New York City. Um, one of the things that our art director was looking at doing a piece on is just the nature of Atlanta being not sort of wall-to-wall urbanism of Manhattan. You know, in Manhattan, you've got either zero or one side of the building that you can do art on, right? Because yeah. it's either like a nice stone facade on the front, two are covered, and the backs of the, you know, access. But in Atlanta, all these buildings have like four sides, and, and each one creates its opportunity for public space. And of course, we're not as dense, so we're filling in with kind of wacky infill. But the ability to have like, you know, if you go to Atlanta now, it's like there's a freaking mural everywhere you look. Like the whole mm. city is a canvas and it's this beautiful, it's messy <laughs> to your mm-hmm. point. Um, much messier than even New York, which, in, you know, in, in its day and even today is very messy in its own way. Um, but it's, it's beautiful how that evolves. And I think uh, if we do this right around every corner will be a surprise and it won't be without struggle. But it's it's that messiness is beautiful, and you know, um, and I think again, why so many people are moving here, the opportunity is to create the messiness, but yep. uh, enjoy it as well. Yeah, I actually think that the uh, the change in Atlanta over the last couple of decades is is utterly remarkable, and it's it's really one of the great stories that uh, people don't really talk about very much. But I mean, obviously, the region itself has grown tremendously, but you know how much the downtown midtown and all all the urban areas have changed uh, for the better is is remarkable uh, so i concur uh aaron i think we'll wrap it up there i'll, I'll uh you have some sort of a hat that you're wearing with a d on it it I must do. be some university that uh, really just hasn't been relevant in a while in, in basketball. So I'll just kind of <laughs> well, look past that. But. So, well, what's funny is it's actually for my son's Durham school of the arts uh, hat, but, um, oh, okay. and I'm a Carolina fan. So it's funny I've, at growing up in Michigan and then being a Carolina fan about once every five years, I get into an argument with a Duke student who's wearing a Detroit tigers hat. <laughs> and, the, and I was like, Oh, you're, you're from Detroit. And they're like, no, 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 it's Duke. And I, and I, and I just, trigger into a rage and i was like there is a difference between old english and gothic fonts let's talk about it so <laughs> all right all right well aaron great to talk to you uh, i will uh, look forward to i'll uh, probably see you next week in uh, in charlotte i look forward to it thanks for having me all right take care